I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road Church. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are so glad that you've joined us this morning, um, this beautiful morning, April mornings in Oklahoma. You don't always, as if you've been here any length of time, you don't know what kind of weather you're going to get on Easter, but we got a good one this morning. We can thank God for the good weather um, that we got this morning um, to celebrate um, this Easter. If I've not had a chance to meet you and you have time to stick around before you uh, take off for brunch or um, to, to um, spend time with family and friends afterward, I'd love to meet you. So if you have time to stick around, I would love to say hi to you face to face. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into uh, the resurrection story. God, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that we actually have um, Bibles, the word of God, to be able to know about and see and study and experience all over again the resurrection as it's laid out in your word. I pray more than anything today that we would feel the weight of what happened, that we wouldn't dismiss it, that it wouldn't be familiar, that it wouldn't be um, kind of caught up with other trappings of the holiday, but we would truly put ourselves in this story and feel and experience what those first followers of Jesus would have experienced on this morning. And as a result of focusing on that, I pray you would change us through your spirit as a result of hearing this good news. And we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I came across a great line this week as I was studying and preparing, and it's this. A belief in something doesn't have the power to change us until it becomes personal. I'll say that again. A belief in something doesn't have the power to change us until it becomes personal. And we, we see this all around us, right? We have the, these events, these moments in time that as a result of those events change us. We see these in the world, things that have changed the world, dates that I can just say that you know changed the world. December 7th, 1941, you history people, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, who pulled our country formally into World War II. September 11th, 2001, the bombing of the World Trade Center. March 11th, 2020, history books have not quite gotten to this one yet, but if you don't remember this, especially people here in Oklahoma, this was um, the night that the Oklahoma City Thunder, we were hosting the Jazz, and they canceled the game because somebody on the Jazz tested positive for COVID. This was the first really game that was canceled, and moving forward, it was felt like around here a domino, that from that point forward, nothing would be the same, and we still feel the effects of that one moment in time. To get a little bit more personal... Um, maybe things like your parents tell you that they are getting a divorce. Change you forever, that news. A birth of a child. Change you forever. You mark that, that day. You think back to that day. Maybe it's a health scare that causes you to become healthier. You forever are changed in the way you approach food and exercise and being healthy just because of this news you received. It changes you completely. So when we believe in something and we, we, we put our trust in that, 
It has the power to change us if it becomes personal. And on this day, when we celebrate the event that I would say had the greatest impact that our world has ever seen or known or felt, that is the event of the resurrection, the empty tomb. We, we need to allow this news to become personal to us. We must apply this knowledge about the resurrection, and if you believe in that, then you need to apply that to your life and make it personal. But here's my fear. My fear is when we hear this news, when we celebrate Easter, we come in here, that we just hear it so often and it doesn't become personal. It just becomes something that we give intellectual assent to and say, yeah, I believe that happened. Those of us who maybe are followers of Jesus in this room. Here's some of the things that I just came across this week that kind of, in, in a humorous way, I think make my point with some of the things that can kind of get in the way of us truly feeling the weight of what happened on Easter morning, 2,000 or so years ago. Listen to this. No bunny loves you like Jesus. Come on. Have a hoppily Easter. Jesus Love is extravagant. Just terrible, terrible, terrible. All over the place, this kind of stuff, right? This week. And, and I, I make light of those things because I want us to know that this is the stuff that surrounds us, right? The Easter holiday, the trappings, the cultural things. Like we, we get fed these things on our timelines and on our social media platforms and maybe in stores that we see cards and, and whatever. And I don't think these statements are going to reveal the weight of the resurrection. Am I right? Even something as biblical and accurate as he is risen. This great three-word like, proclamation of what has happened can become white noise. You scroll through your feed and you see it maybe in a graphic surrounded by flowers. And then you see the cross and you see the empty tomb. And then you see uh, a bunny and eggs with he is risen. I mean, it's, it's just weird. It's bizarre that we mix these things. And my fear is that the news of the resurrection just becomes more pithy, more Christian sentimentality and loses the power that it actually has to change us. So this morning, I want us to feel the weight and the magnitude of what has happened on this morning. And we're going to, to do that, we're going to spend our time looking at one particular interaction. We're going to focus on that between Jesus and one of his followers to just show us how powerful this resurrection was to those early followers. But we're going to ramp up to that moment by going back to verse 1. John tells us in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And John is brilliant in his writing. He is, there's so many layers to what John is saying here. He was a, a firsthand witness to much of this. If not a firsthand, he was a secondhand witness to everything that he is going to write in this particular chapter. The details he gives are intentional. There's a reason why he describes things the way he describes them. For example, at the first, that first part of that first verse, now on the first day of the week. He didn't have to say that, right? But to a Jewish person, Saturday was the big day at this point in time. Saturday was the big day. Saturday was it. Everything revolved around Saturday. But now this is Sunday. 
Jesus rose on Sunday, and so now John is saying on the first day of the week. He's actually changing kind of the order of the week for things to begin on Sunday. That's the day of importance, and we still feel those effects now, right? Most churches, overwhelmingly majority of churches, Sunday is the day you gather. Much of our calendar is built off Sundays being the first day of the week. And when you look at a calendar, right, it's on the far left side. There's some, there's some impacts of just that simple phrase in when Jesus rose from the dead. It says she came to the tomb early, right? Mary is there to prepare the body. That's what she thought she was coming there, to prepare the body, to, to prepare it for a funeral. But then she witnessed a resurrection. It's dark, John says. And yes, he's referring to the time of day. It's early morning. It's the, the, the sun is about to rise. It's kind of that, that time between dead of night and sunrise. It's, it's dawn. But it's more than just the, 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 the climate at the time or the time of day. John is describing something else. We remember in Genesis 1-2 when God is creating, it, it describes in Genesis that there's, there's darkness, right? It's just dark. And then God creates light to go with the darkness, to give light to the world. We have Jesus at the beginning of this book of John. John describes him as the light, the true light, the light that has come into a dark world. John is kind of referring back to that imagery. Genesis 1 and 2 begin with a man and a woman in a garden, Adam and Eve. We're going to see in a moment this story contains a man and a woman in the garden, Jesus and Mary in the garden. You see all this imagery to show in the scriptures, and John is well aware of it, the continuation from the very beginning of Genesis has been pointing to these events like we talked about last week. Verse 2 then tells, tells us that John says that she, she runs and tells Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loves. So now John is focusing on himself and Peter. This is who Mary told. And, he, and she says, and they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, Mary has no idea that this is a resurrection, right? She just assumes what most of us would assume. Somebody took it. Somebody took Jesus' body. Somebody must have done this. That's her only explanation at this moment. Then John, and I, it was funny that y'all even picked up on this when, when Jay was reading, but John, you know, old John, prideful John, makes it clear that he outran Peter. Kind of... Um, kind of petty, um, but this is the ultimate trash-talking flex, right? Because John actually gets to write a gospel. Peter doesn't. John gets a chance to explain his side of the story. Peter never gets that chance. Peter didn't have a gospel to explain his side of the story. So John is, John is wasting no ink on getting this down, making sure for two, thousands and thousands of years, we're going to look back on a day like this and remember that he was faster than Peter. Crazy. Now, this is canon, and it is the word of God. And John is, man, John is, John is smart in that way. John gets there first, but Peter goes in first. Kind of, he, he, he's at least truthful with that. Doesn't really talk about Peter's courage, or maybe he was scared. We don't know. Um, and Peter, he says, sees the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth folded. This is one of the kind of proof against the theory that thieves stole the body. Is If you're trying to steal a body out of a tomb that was guarded by Romans, you would not have taken the time to, to methodically unroll the, the linen cloth that would have been wrapping Jesus. If it was about the body, you take that body and you worry about the linen cloths later, at least in, 
I don't have any experience moving bodies around like this, but I think that's what you would do, right? You would, you would, move, you would take the time to take the clothes off and fold them, and that's what Peter observed. Then John says he went in and saw and believed, and they went back to their homes. This was John. Something clicked in John as we read this. Like he, All the things that Jesus had told him started coming back to him in this moment, and it's almost like, aha, this is what's happened. This is what Jesus had been talking about for so long. It says he believed. And then in the meantime, Mary's probably kind of almost passing them because they've sprinted there. Mary's now coming back to kind of get to the bottom of this, right? Um, And then Jesus reveals himself to her. Now imagine being the first human being to ever see our risen Lord face to face. Like it's just a mind-boggling experience that Mary got to have this, this opportunity that the other disciples didn't in this moment. It's another kind of proof for why this story is, is true. It's because if you were trying to fabricate a story, you would not have fabricated it with um, a woman seeing Jesus first in this time period. The way they viewed women at this time period, their, their testimony would have not held up in court as well as a man would have had. So if you were fabricating this, you would have for sure had a man see Jesus first. Therefore, you could have defended that better in kind of a situation like that. And the other thing, it's just cool that Jesus chose to reveal himself to her first. So just kind of this, the the way the culture treated women, that Jesus went out of his way to make sure she was the one who saw him first. Just an interesting detail there that John is clear on. And then we move to verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They're still scared. There's still a lot of, obviously, conversation around Jesus. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Because this was probably pretty, like, freaky for them, right? Like, Jesus walking through a locked door. Of course, Jesus probably needs to say, Peace be with you first. We're terrified when they first see Jesus. Verse 20 says, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, it's interesting, John, here, he zeroes in on Thomas. Make sure he mentions him by name. One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He's making it clear. Hey, Thomas wasn't here. So it just seems like it was, it's interesting that Thomas wasn't there, right? But John wants us to, to know that, hey, by the way, he wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to them. So the other disciples told him, uh, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. They're witnessing to him. They're, they're preaching to him the good news of the resurrection. And then he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So prideful Thomas, right? Thomas has to, he needs more. The testimony of his closest friends is not enough. Let's talk about this guy named Thomas, often affectionately known as Doubting Thomas. Disciples tell him what happened, and he didn't believe them. And Tom gets a lot of flack for being the guy who doubts, right? It's even kind of become a a phrase that we throw out. Oh, he's just a Doubting Thomas, right? Poor Thomas. But before we go too hard on him, let's put put ourselves in his shoes, right? A guy he spent three years with, 
gave up his life for for three years, followed him around, spent close, intimate time with, died in a horrific way. Things are chaotic. They're scattered. His world's been overturned in a a very, very sad way. And now, just a few days later, they're saying he came back from the dead. Like, we wouldn't have believed the disciples initially either, probably, right? He didn't believe him. We probably wouldn't have believed him either. Look at verse 26. Here's John making sure we mark the day. So that was on a Sunday, eight days later, right? Which would have been another Sunday. It's interesting that he's marking the two Sundays as bookends, right? There's something important that happens on Sundays, okay? This is why we do what we do on Sundays. It's clear that this, and even the way Jesus kind of orchestrated when he was going to be visible to them, both on a Sunday. Why he waited eight days, we don't know, but it was Sunday to Sunday. It says his disciples were inside again, same place, and Thomas was with them. John, make sure we know that, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Again, Jesus walking through that door with this kind of resurrected body he had. I think everyone in this room can identify with Thomas. Some of you flat out don't believe the resurrection happened. This may be what is the primary thing getting in the way of you putting your faith in Jesus and becoming a follower of him. Um, If you were a follower of Jesus in this room, there, there are probably still pockets of unbelief in your life. There are still places, corners of maybe your inner life where you still don't fully believe God, Jesus, the word of God, right? There are some places where there is unbelief for you as well. So you can identify with Thomas in that way. Maybe that describes you and you believe intellectually in the resurrection. Like, yeah, I've done the apologetics. I know it's happened. Yes, this is a thing that we need to believe in, but it, it hasn't translated into what Jesus calls the abundant life, new life, life empowered by the spirit that Jesus sends to live inside of us, to make that new life a reality for us internally. Now, one of the ways we can evaluate this is questions like, where do you run to when life gets hard? What do you run to? What's your gut like run to when your life doesn't turn out the way you want it to? Or, or when you think things are getting out of your control? What do you turn to, to to hope in? Is it to grab more control? Does it make you anxious? What about the trying to win that approval and, and affection of that one person that you're so desperate to, to find that in? When that doesn't work out the way you want it to, what do you put your hope in? Are you prone to chasing something new to give you hope that only belief in the resurrection can give? These questions begin to hopefully kind of bring to the surface maybe some of those dark corners where you don't believe Jesus fully. Like this man who rose from the dead and is alive now and lives inside if you're you a follower of Jesus through the power of the Spirit, you still say, eh, I don't know. Maybe like Thomas does. Let's look closer at this conversation between Jesus and Thomas. We can't miss this. So eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them. They said, peace be with you. So I'm assuming this is probably a pretty packed room, right? At least the the 12 are there. Probably a few more in this room as well. And imagine what Thomas would have felt when Jesus comes through that door. Like busted. 
right? I've been talking to the disciples, like, yeah, all this bravado. I'm not going to believe in that. I need proof. I need to put my finger in the wounds. I need to have a little bit of blood on my fingers when I do that. I need to, I need to know this. He tells his disciples this, and then Jesus comes through that door. You imagine the sweaty palms, the dry mouth, the knot in the throat, the pit in the stomach of how are you going to get out of this? Because you've been talking about how much you don't believe that Jesus is alive. And now put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You see this man, Thomas. You're looking at him now. This man you've spent the better part of three years with. You've, you've prayed with him. You've, you've had near-death experiences with him. You've taught him about your death and resurrection and been his rabbi, and yet he still doesn't believe when his closest buddies tell him that Jesus is alive. And I can imagine Jesus, again, looking at Thomas in the eyes. Thomas is this, in, in, the, in the middle of the attention. The room is around. Jesus, Thomas, lock eyes. And then he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, if I'm Jesus and I have that kind of power and this is, this is like, I'm, putting, I'm tempted to put Thomas in his place. I'm tempted to like break down that further. Hey, remember when I told you this, Thomas? Yeah, it's come true. Like, why are you doing this? But he doesn't. He draws him in. He gives him space to doubt. He invites him even closer, like, like weirdly close of like putting his fingers in open wounds. Jesus wants to connect with Thomas in that way. He wants Thomas to know that this is real, that it happened. Jesus has an otherworldly patience here with Thomas. See, Thomas and I not only heard about the resurrection, he heard about it, like he knew about it. His buddies told him about it, but he had to be brought to see Jesus himself. Not that just Jesus rose from the dead in some kind of generic way, but he actually rose from the dead for him, for Thomas. Salvation was available for Thomas, not just for the world, but for Thomas himself in that moment. Thomas needed to feel this. In verse 28, one of the, I think the greatest like, passages in Scripture that we overlook, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, exclamation. More like, my Lord and my God. That's how it would have come out of Thomas's mouth in this room when it clicked for Thomas. The hardest-hearted disciple melts when Jesus singles him out, looks at him, says, hit me with your doubts. Come on, you need a little bit more, you need to get closer, you need to touch the wounds. He considers his doubts. He's prepared to listen to his doubts. Offers physical proof for Thomas's belief. I want you to, to look at me. Your doubt, the level of your doubt will never exceed the level of God's grace and mercy found in Jesus. Period. You can doubt, you can doubt, you can doubt, and it never will outweigh God's grace and his mercy found in Jesus. You will never be beyond his reach, no matter how much you doubt or deconstruct or try to figure everything out. You are never beyond his reach, and that is good news. You are probably not going to out-doubt Thomas here. 
It's interesting, we don't see someone coming to Jesus. John probably would have recorded that, saying, hey, hey, FYI, this Tom, he, he's doubting again. Thomas is doubting. You, better, you need to single him out and like, teach him some things. We don't see that. Because Jesus already knows. Jesus knows Thomas. Jesus knows his doubts. Jesus knows your doubts. Jesus knows my doubts. He is God. And from this text, it appears that Thomas never went through touching Jesus in those spots. You look closer at this, like John's the type of writer that we've seen that would have included the moment that Thomas touched those wounds. So something happened between Jesus walking in the room and Thomas's confession that changed him, that made his doubts go away. And it wasn't him touching physically Jesus in those ways. That's not really what Thomas needed. Maybe Thomas thought he needed that. He needed a face to face encounter experience with the love, compassion, mercy, and grace that Jesus showed him, and it melted him. God changed his heart, and he said, my Lord and my God, my Savior. Beautiful, beautiful that, that, that Thomas didn't even have to go through that, that he felt or was overwhelmed with the grace and mercy that Jesus showed him in that face-to-face meeting. See, there's a difference in believing that Jesus rose from the dead intellectually out here, right? Like, yeah, oh yeah, we get that. I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to believe that. It's a big deal. There's this pressure, like this, especially this holiday. Like, yeah, I believe, I believe, I believe, right? We, we, we want to quickly assent to saying, yeah, it happened, but it is entirely another thing to believe that Jesus died for you. And when Jesus begins to change your heart and call you to himself like he did Thomas, you feel the personal nature of the relationship that is knowing the resurrection. You know the resurrection. You know Jesus. And it becomes this unshakable foundation when you see Jesus and meet Jesus and experience his grace and mercy and and this this, this patience that is fine with us coming and doubting him. He's okay with that. It provides this foundation for us to live our life full of hope in him, not in all the other counterfeit temporary hopes that the world has to offer. It's like the difference in someone telling you they love you in a letter or a text versus actually showing you that they love you in person in the present when y'all are together. It's the same feeling, right? Like you can say all these things, know all these things, but until you experience it firsthand, it's not going to have the effect on you. If you're here and you doubt the resurrection, you're in good company. You're in good company. If you're here and you're struggling with doubts and parts of your faith, which, if we were to be honest, is all of us, none of us can can say, say, I have zero doubts about my faith. Right, that's, that's impossible, I believe. We're all in good company. He wants you to bring those doubts to him. He wants you to come to him when you're struggling, believing something, not to run away, not to chase something else. Notice Thomas didn't do that. Like eight days went by after he heard this and he was then there with his disciples, there with his buddies, there with the, 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 those early remnants of the church, that would, the, early birth, the, the early beginnings of the church, I should say. Don't run away. Don't chase a counterfeit hope somewhere else. Don't find a group of people who are sowing seeds of doubt, trying to pull you away from the love and the grace and mercy of God. 
Come to him. Don't move away. Come to him. He wants you to come to him. He can handle it. He'll listen to your doubts. He's God. He'll be fine. But Jesus does challenge us to believe. He is God. He is the Savior. He is the only way. We see that to even Thomas. He said, don't disbelieve, believe. He calls Thomas to a response. Right? In that moment, he knew this was the most important moment in Thomas's life. He was present with him, but he called him to belief. John, we see this again in John 11, 25 and 26. Earlier in the book of John, Jesus is talking to a, a lady named Martha, and he tells this to Martha in this conversation. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. And he would ask us as well. And I believe he is asking us this, this morning through his word. This isn't a generic truth for everyone. This, this, uh, in chapter 11 here he says, um, whoever believes in me, right? And everyone who lives and believes in me. Like experiencing Jesus's uh, God's grace through Jesus' uh, grace and hope and compassion, all these things, it's conditional. It's conditional upon our belief. It's conditional upon our faith. To truly experience who Jesus is in God's grace and mercy, we must believe. He wants our doubts. He welcomes them and he listens, but he will put us to a decision and he wants us to believe. He wants us to come to him empty-handed, saying, help me. Help me with my, help me with my belief. I want to believe. I'm close to believing. But there's these things. There's my past. There's these intellectual doubts. Come to him open-handed and say, help me. Help me believe. Show humility. Don't run from him. Go to him. Be like Thomas. He's a great model for all of us. And this is what it means to put our hope in something. It's not having all the answers figured out to put our hope in something, right? We believe that I'm going to put my hope in this, and there's some faith involved. Like, where else would I go? Where else would I put my hope in in this world? But this guy, the one who rose from the dead. All these other questions I've got to figure out, yes. But put your hope in Jesus, the one, the only one who's ever risen from the dead and has never died again and is alive today, right now, as we're doing this right now. He's alive. Then you get to verse 29. And Jesus says to Thomas still, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now I think, and most commentators agree with me, that, I, that this, this is said, Jesus says this, and John mentions this, not to diminish Thomas's confession. He's not trying to belittle what Thomas has just confessed, uh, but to highlight those who have faith and belief, even though they didn't see him, right? like you and I like everyone who would come to know Jesus through the ministry of these disciples who are in that room. Everyone else after these initial disciples will hear the gospel and believe without seeing Jesus face to face the way these disciples have. And he's saying, those people are blessed. Those people are blessed. Blessed to hear the gospel, blessed to believe the gospel. To believe that Jesus took God's wrath upon himself that we all deserved as a punishment for our sin he took that upon himself. We believe in that. We're blessed when we believe in that. 
And that we receive Jesus' perfect righteousness, his perfect record of his sinless life. Something we have, we can't offer that because we're all imperfect. We can't stand before God with a perfect record. We need someone else to stand before God with a perfect record, and that person is Jesus. And then here comes the resurrection on the third day, which is God basically telling us, I've approved it. I've approved the sacrifice. I've accepted Christ's suffering and death as a penalty and a payment for your sin. I accept it. And God shows favor to Christ in his resurrection, right? He, 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 he's the king. He has the inheritance. He's at the right hand of the Father, and we share all those benefits spiritually with Jesus because we're in him through faith. When we say we believe in Jesus, we, have, we experience the resurrection in new life like Jesus has. This is why the resurrection is so important and so crucial. If Jesus stayed in the ground, maybe a, maybe a, a magician that did some kind of cool stuff, maybe, maybe a, a really good teacher, maybe just an incredible martyr who laid down his life for these causes he had, that's all he is if he didn't rise from the dead. But this is the proof that he's God. That what he did on the cross actually fulfilled what he said it would do. Again, this isn't pithy Christian sentimentality that has no power to save us. Following Jesus isn't something you do to fit into a certain subculture in our world that often maybe has some benefits or to put on the buffet line next to all the other important things in your life. Like while we're thinking about food, right? It's like that spread you're going to eat after this. Like the resurrection is like the restaurant that you walk through the doors of and experience all the things on the buffet because you walk through that restaurant. That's what the resurrection is. It's the hub of the wheel that all the spokes are coming out of, not another spoke in whatever you're putting in the middle. Jesus is the hub and everything else, family, work, friends, hobbies, come out from the center, which is Jesus. We have to feel the weight and the magnitude of the resurrection. It was a massive event in the lives of the disciples. They left everything to follow Jesus. They spent the better part of three years of their lives following Jesus. They were shocked and saddened, and they scattered when he was crucified. And then they, three days later, he's back from the dead, resurrected, talking to them. Um, you know, we'll see next chapter, he cooks breakfast for them. This would have turned their world upside down. The resurrection is something followers of Jesus put their hope in and they bank on it. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. This is part of a a chapter where maybe Paul's um, greatest teaching on the resurrection. He says this kind of towards the end of that chapter. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the, pre- when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And this is the banner. This is the banner of all followers of Jesus because of the resurrection. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Not that we won't ever face death. We all will face death because we're human beings. But the death has lost its sting because Jesus is alive. And if we have faith in him, we will live forever too in, in all eternity. So we can look at death and not be freaked out by it, not be paralyzed by it. Saddened by it, yes. Broken by it, yes. But it loses the sting that it once had because Jesus is alive and will be with him forever. The resurrection changes everything. Like Jesus told Thomas, don't disbelieve, believe. 
believe it. So I would implore all of us in this room this morning to believe. Wherever you're at, if you're, if you're maybe hearing the gospel for the first time, believe. Maybe this is the day you become a follower of Jesus. I would love that. I'd, I'd make my year if I heard someone becoming a follower of Jesus today on Easter. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I encourage you, I implore you to believe at a deeper level. Maybe there's those areas where you're still doubting, you're still wrestling, or you haven't fully given over to God in those areas. Deal with it with God. Come to him in those areas and ask him to help you believe in those areas. Ask yourself to allow his grace and mercy to work itself out in all areas of your life, not just the ones that you're handing to him right now. So how do we do that? A couple of quick things as we close. Let's go back to Thomas. Number one, trust Jesus with your doubts. We all have them. We all have him. Trust him. Go to him. Run to him. He already knows. He listens. Have that experience that Thomas had. Imagine Jesus standing there and you pouring out your doubts to him. And him just pulling you closer. Because of what he's already done for you. He allows us to do that through his spirit now. Second thing, allow this new life we have in Jesus to change you. When, you, when we leave this place, when you walk out those doors, you should be changed more because of the resurrection. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we love. It changes the way we treat people. It changes the way we serve. It changes the way we, we, we interact with people um, in, in, our, in our families. We go on and on and on. The resurrection changes everything. And there's no better example than Thomas himself. According to historian Eusebius, shortly after these events, Thomas went to the southern part of India to plant churches and preach the gospel, plant churches. He would be killed by a spear as a martyr in AD 72, about 40-ish years after the events we, we um, read about today. And people in India, if you've ever been there, people in India, they still know Thomas because they know he was the one who brought the gospel to India. And they love Thomas. They, they esteem Thomas. You can go there and they have a shrine that where his body um, still resides there in a tomb. You can go there today and visit it, the tomb of St. Thomas. And we know all the other disciples gave up their life in some way. All of them but John, death. John, exile. Died a lonely death on an island. All because of the resurrection. Like this changed their world upside down that they were willing to give their life for this cause and for this man. Powerful events change people. When we believe in something deeply, it changes us to the point of someone willing to die. I pray that God would change us as a result of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, again, I ask that this wouldn't be just, just something that we assent to or, or, or um, immediately go into apologetics and trying to prove that it happened. I, I pray that we would stop especially in this, in the, towards the end of the service here as we move into communion, we would stop and we would reflect and ask ourselves, how is the resurrection changing me now? How is the truth that Jesus is alive and living in me through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, how is that changing me today? How will that change me when I leave this place today and how I interact with people? Help us. Help us in our unbelief. We all have it. We need your help through the Spirit. I pray for those people here who maybe are hearing the gospel for the first time. I pray like Thomas that you would meet them in this, this spiritual way and that you would 
soften hearts, that you would cause people to believe and trust you. Maybe not having all the things answered or all the, all the doubts fixed, but again, Thomas says, my Lord and my Savior. I know you to be those two things, Thomas says, and he confessed and believed. So help us in that, Lord. And we love you. And we love your son. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.